Thank you, Pastor Bobby, and Happy New Year to all of you. Today, in light of the new year, I'd like to do something a little different with the sermon. Uh, rather than continuing to the next part of Ecclesiastes or examining just one passage in a particular part of Scripture, I'd like to consider Scripture as a whole as we examine a topic that is crucial for the Christian life, and that topic is repentance. Repentance is fundamental when it comes to salvation, and it is critical for sanctification for the believer. And yet there is such great ignorance about repentance in the world. Even among professing Christians, most people in the world do not understand repentance biblically and have seldom, if ever, practiced it. If you are looking to evangelize someone who is a religious person, even a professing Christian, but they don't really know the Lord, you're going to have to explain to them their need for repentance and even what repentance is. Or even among true believers, even those who do know God, there is still great misunderstanding when it comes to repentance. I remember my seminary professor, Dr. John Street, who was responsible for teaching the biblical counseling classes. He told us frankly that of those that we counsel with their scriptures, no matter what the problem is, it is extremely likely that we will need to go with that person and teach them about repentance, to correct misunderstandings about repentance. And you know what? In the biblical counseling I've done um, in seminary and since seminary, I have found that to be totally true. Whether it's with a couple or with an individual, you have to teach about repentance because there's so much misunderstanding. In a way, the great lack of understanding when it comes to repentance today is not entirely surprising because a biblical view and practice of repentance does not come natural to the sinful flesh. In fact, it goes against the grain of our arrogant, largely arrogant society. When it comes to our American culture, when someone is caught in doing wrong, they usually don't repent. Typically, there's no repentance. But what is there instead? If there's any sort of contrition, there's an apology. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have sorrow for what happened. In America, we don't really repent. We just apologize, which is kind of ironic because the word apology comes from a Greek root that doesn't mean to express sorrow, but actually to make a defense, which is where we get the term apologetics. Apologists are not people just going around saying, I'm sorry all the time. They're actually presenting a defense of the faith. Ironically, many of the apologies that we hear these days, they are more defenses than actual expressions of repentance. And... Have you ever noticed this? Maybe you've said this yourself. Things like, well, apologies that shift blame, such as, I'm sorry that you're so upset. Which is really another way of saying, I'm not the one with the problem, you are. Or, I'm sorry that I did that, but, and it doesn't really matter what follows, because really what the whole statement is saying is, I'm justified in what I did. And then there are kinds of apologies that excuse wrongs by relabeling them. I didn't do evil. I made a mistake. I'm sorry for my mistake. Or I didn't sin. It was just poor judgment. I'm not enslaved to prideful anger. I just have a temper. Or I'm bipolar. Or I'm not a disobedient child wanting my own way. I have oppositional defiant disorder. As our culture ably demonstrates, the sinful heart is very good at ignoring and excusing sin. But if we want the eternal life of God, if we want salvation, if we want Christ, and if we want to walk in a happy and holy way before Him, then we must deal with sin in the proper way. And that proper way includes Repentance. What is repentance? That's the title of the sermon today, and it's the question that, by God's Spirit, we will answer from His Word. My plan with this somewhat unique sermon is to 
lay out an overall definition and some background of repentance before you. And then we're going to explore four key aspects of repentance together. Four key aspects of repentance as presented in the scriptures. I'm going to anchor my definition as well as these different key aspects of repentance in one main Bible passage each. Uh, I'm going to be looking at many scriptures. I don't want you to just keep flipping back and forth in scriptures. So just five main passages, but I will mention others as illustrations and clarifications of what we're talking about. Let's start with a definition and some background on repentance. And for that, please turn in your Bibles to Mark 1, verse 15. Mark 1, verse 15. This is our first anchor passage. It's the beginning of Mark's gospel. Right before this, Jesus has been baptized. He persevered through the temptations of the wilderness. And he's just about to start his preaching ministry in the region of Galilee. What is the message that Jesus is going to actually proclaim, is actually going to preach? We see it in Mark 1.15, where Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In this short statement is contained the entire good news, the gospel, in brief. Jesus says, and we say, God has accomplished salvation for his people. And his kingdom is about to arrive. If you want entrance into that kingdom, you must repent and believe. What is repentance? Here's the definition I'd like to provide for you. A brief definition. You see it on the screen. Repentance is the turning of the entire self from sin to God. Repentance is the turning of the entire self or the entire inner man from sin to God. And though the terms repent and repentance are not super well understood or well known in our society today, they're all over the scriptures. There's a long tradition of the concept of repentance in the Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testament, the word that means repent is the word shuv, the Hebrew word shuv. And literally it means to turn, to turn back, to turn away from or turn toward or even to return. In the Greek New Testament, there are two verbs that are used to express the concept of repentance. The first term is epistrepho, which basically is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew shuv. It refers to the action of turning and can be quite literal. Epistrepho is a visible change of direction, especially evident in one's behavior. The other New Testament term for repentance, and it's the one that's used here in Mark 1.15, is metanoia, or metanoeo, if you're using the Greek verb. This term means to change one's mind, to change one's heart. This is an internal turning that is assumed to result in external turning as well, external change. So these biblical terms are why I say that repentance is a turning of the entire self. It is an internal change that leads to external change. It is a moving from following sin and self to following after God and righteousness. Common and good illustration of repentance is the 180 degree turn. Before, you were going this direction, away from God and away from what is right. But when you repent, you turn the other direction, 180 degrees, toward God and toward what He's called you to do in His Word. That's repentance. Now, notice that in Mark 1.15 here, Jesus says that this kind of repentance is required as alongside faith for entrance into the kingdom of God. And do note that he has paired the term repent with the term believe, or it's equivalent to faith. These two verbs, they constitute the entire human response to the gospel. If you want to be saved, then you must repent and believe. Now, if you've been at this church, if you're familiar with the scriptures, then you know that salvation, biblically, is all of God. God is the one who 
accomplishes salvation. He gives you the gift of faith, and he even grants you repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 and other scriptures emphasize that. But whatever God is doing, the scriptures are clear what our obligatory response must be. And that is what Jesus says here, repentance and faith. None of this, well, you know, what is God doing? I don't know. You need to repent and believe. That's what your calling is from God. That's a command. And these two terms are actually very connected. They're really two sides of the same coin. They're just different emphasis of the same, really, turning. Repentance emphasizes what you put off. You're putting off sin. You're putting off yourself. You're putting off self-righteousness, things that you think are going to earn favor with God. And you're putting on, in faith, that's the other side of the coin, you're putting on Christ. You are taking hold. It's like you've emptied your hands, but now you're filling your hands with God himself and with the salvation that he's provided. Repentance and faith are very tied together. In fact, we see them often uh, linked conceptually in one verse or in a passage in Scripture. And just to give you one example of this, you don't need to turn there. I'll just mention it to you. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, when Paul is explaining how the Thessalonian believers have become saved, he describes it in this way. You turned, and that's epistrepho, you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So you turned from the idols and you served God. That's repentance and belief, repentance and faith. In fact, sometimes the Bible only uses one of the terms because the other is implied. And you can see this pretty evidently in the parallel verse to the one we have here in Mark 1.15. You see Mark 1.15, he says, repent and believe the gospel. But in Matthew 4.17, which is describing the same instance, Jesus beginning his preaching ministry in Galilee, this is what Matthew records. Mark, Matthew 4.17, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wait, just repent? I don't need to believe? Well, of course you need to believe. It's implied in the term repent. You can use one term while implying the other. They go together. Now, there is a sense in which repentance and faith are once and for all responses to Christ. That is, if you truly repent and believe, then you are saved. You are once and for all transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and to the kingdom of Christ. You cannot lose your salvation. You are forever secure in your Lord, for he's the good shepherd, and he will not lose any of his sheep. There is a sense it's once and for all, but there is another sense in which it is ongoing. It is a continual practice. Repentance and faith. For consider, if you start with faith in Christ, do you then abandon it? Do you then say, I don't need faith anymore. I don't need to trust Christ anymore. No, you continue in faith, and you even grow in faith. So it is with repentance. Yes, you start with repentance, but you also continue in repentance. Because true believers, even when they repent and turn to God in that fundamental and initial way, they do not suddenly become perfect. Though they are counted righteous before God for Christ, because of Christ, behaviorally they are not yet perfect. And they will still find themselves, we will still find ourselves falling at various times into sin. What the true believer does in this instance when he sins and when he realizes that he has sinned against God and against others, he will repent again. Not in order to be resaved, that's already done, that's accomplished in full. But it is to restore happy fellowship with God and to restore fellowship with others, to resume the walk that we have as disciples of Christ. You must understand that we believers, if you truly know the Lord, we are a people with a lifestyle of repentance and faith. We must be. It's not perfection, but it is holiness. It's not sinlessness, but it is a life where we are putting off more and more the evil that yet clings to us and putting on more and more Christ and the righteous life he's called us to. It's like what our Lord spoke to us through our brother Khalif a few years ago from John 13. Remember, that's the passage where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. 
And as Khalif was explaining to us, as the passage really reveals, if you're in Christ, Christ has fundamentally washed you, and you are totally clean. Nothing can change that if you really know him. But them feet, though, as Khalif said, right? Your feet still get dirty from time to time. And they require the ongoing washing of repentance. And not only must this repentance be before God, but it must be before others. There is a lifestyle of repentance in our relationships. Because we don't just sin against God. Often the way we sin against God is by sinning against others. Even others in the church. Even others in our family. People who are made in God's image. Even fellow disciples. And that's why the Bible commands us to be repenting and reconciling our relationships. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says, this is Jesus speaking, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Luke 17, 3 and 4 adds, Luke 17, 3 and 4, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Repentance is toward God, but it is also toward one another. So what is repentance? It is a turning of the entire self from sin to God. It happens once and for all at conversion when a person is saved by Christ, but it also is part of a lifestyle of ongoing holiness that keeps short accounts with God and with others. But is this the kind of repentance that you have experienced and that you demonstrate in an ongoing way in your life? This must be our kind of repentance. We must be people who have repented and are still repenting to become more like the Lord. So we have this definition and a little bit of background, but let's fill in this definition a little bit more by highlighting four key aspects of true repentance. Four key aspects of true repentance. If repentance truly is a turning of the entire self from sin to God, then it will manifest in every aspect of our inner man. And we can categorize those as the understanding, the emotions, and the will. There needs to be a turning, a true turning in each one of these areas if the repentance is going to be true, because it's the entire self. Also, though repentance takes place in the inner man, it will manifest in a another aspect, an external aspect of, of ourselves, and that is our behavior. And we'll talk more about that. If any one of these aspects of repentance is meaning, missing, or if there is not a true and full turn in any one of these areas, well then, let me say plainly, from the Scripture, that repentance is False. It's not true repentance, and it's not going to result in lasting change. And sadly, there is a lot of false repentance today. People who think they're repenting when they're not actually. And we need to be aware of that. Let's now explore these key aspects of true repentance. And along the way, considering how they even show up in an expression of repentance. And you'll see what I mean as I lay out each one of these points. First key aspect of true repentance to bring to your attention is, number one, understanding. Understanding leading to confession. For repentance to be real, there must be a genuine understanding of sin as sin. As well as an appreciation of how unjustified, how heinous, how wrath-deserving that sin is from God. And before God. To say it another way, in true repentance, the heart needs to confess or to say the same thing about that sin as God does. 
And a heart that readily confesses this truth before God should then also be willing to confess that truth before others, before those who have been sinned against as part of repentance. To see this aspect, understanding leading to confession, let's go to our second anchor passage, Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4. We're going to see more of the background of this psalm in just a moment. We get information in the title of this psalm. And remember, those titles are part of the original text. They are the inspired word of God. So don't forget to read those and take those into account. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4, title included. Read with me. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. There's a lot of things we could say about this passage I'm just going to highlight a few things as we consider repentance. One of the most remarkable aspects of these verses and of this entire psalm is that it is a song of worship for Israel that actually memorializes some of David, some of King David's worst sins. Now, I don't mean celebrating the sins, but it does bring our attention to them. You see it right in the title. 2 Samuel 11 to 12 gives us the fuller background of what the title gives to us here. But what we have is King David, a righteous man after God's own heart, a good king in Israel. He fell into lust, into adultery, into lying, into murder, and into hypocrisy. And he even refused to repent of these sins for more than nine months because a child was born from his actions. But he was confronted. Nathan the prophet came to him, exposed David's sin, and David confessed. He said, I have sinned against Yahweh, against the Lord, and he repented. But you see more of that confession explained, displayed for us in this psalm. This is not merely David in his understanding, recognizing that, yeah, those actions I did, they are into the category of sin. It's more than that. It's an appreciation of the magnitude of that sin and David's desperate need for God's mercy. And this is very instructive for us. This is really the way we should be looking at our own sin. Notice the terms that David uses in these first four verses to describe his evil actions. There are three main ones here. The first is transgressions. Transgressions is from a Hebrew word signifying a legal offense, a crime. Even covenant treachery. And David is not merely in his confession acknowledging that he has done wrong, but that he has in fact acted as a willful and unjustified rebel against a good covenant-keeping God. This is heinous revolt. And this is true of every one of our sins. Second, notice the term iniquity. This comes from a Hebrew word meaning to do wrong or to pervert. And David says he understands that this is what he's done in his actions. He's not only polluted himself and his kingdom with these sins, but he has also twisted the very blessings and privileges of God, things like marriage and the kingship, and he has twisted them into something ugly, shameful, even detestable to God. This is perversion. And you know, the same is true for our sins. We take the good things of God and we pollute them and we pollute ourselves. And then notice the term, the third term, sin. Sin. This is actually from a Hebrew word meaning to sin. That is to err or to miss the mark. Probably heard this explanation before, but sin is like an archer trying to shoot an arrow at a target and missing. It doesn't hit. 
It doesn't matter how close the arrow was to the target. If it didn't actually hit the target, if it didn't reach the bullseye, it's literally sin. You missed. Now, what's the target that David was aiming for and missing? And even the same target that we all miss by our own sin? It is God himself. God, as the perfect, holy, righteous God, good God that he is, he is the standard of righteousness. To be holy means to be like God. And he helps explain what that looks like for us via his commands. Any deviation from who God is and what he commands is missing the mark, even if it's a little. It's missing the mark and it's sin. And because God is good, he must punish any infraction because he loves what is perfect. He loves what is right. Anything that is not perfect, it's wrong. It's evil. It's ugly. It must be punished. And so he must punish sin. Now, where does that leave David? Or where does that leave us? Oh, I'm missing the mark big time. We're in deep trouble. We're not even close to the target. As Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You didn't reach it. I didn't reach it. You look at God's standard. Even just look at the Ten Commandments. You don't keep those perfectly. You miss the mark. And therefore... You fall under God's judgment. You rightly fall under God's judgment. And so do I. Note one other detail in this text. David says in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Which could be a little confusing. Is David saying that he didn't actually sin against Bathsheba and others? That he only needs to confess and repent before God? Well, that can't be the case because this psalm is a public confession. He's actually confessing before all Israel his sin and pointing people to God's uh, forgiving righteousness. So David certainly is aware that he sinned against others. But he's, he's emphasizing something for us here in this statement. In comparing the importance of the offended parties in sin, the offense against God from David's sin, and any of our sins, is so much greater than even the offense against others. It's almost like we sin exclusively against God. It was right to God's face. And this is not what we assume. We assume that God is way less holy than he actually is. And therefore, you know, a little lie or a little selfish anger, that's not a big deal to God. It's not true. It is a big deal to God. Those things and many others, they're like you went up to God's face and spit in his eye. Or you backhanded him. That's how offensive, that's how exclusive your offense of sin is to God and mine. Our sins are first chiefly against God and an infinite offense. An infinite offense to his worth and character. So, unless there's some radical mercy applied, we will fall under God's burning anger. He's a just God. So, one key aspect of repentance is a change in your understanding about your sin. It leads to a confession in which you say the same thing as God about it. And that's why the Bible exhorts us to confess our sins. Not just against God, or not just to God, but to one another. This is part of experiencing the cleansing and forgiveness that God actually offers. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wow, what a promise that is. Or James 5, 16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confession, a change in our understanding, it should be part of our repentance towards God and towards one another. Now, understand, though, that it's only one aspect. Confession is not all that repentance is. And we can see this in personal experiences in the scripture. There are people in the Bible and today 
who are willing to admit their sin, even say some pretty humbling things about their sin, and yet they do not repent. Look at Balaam, false prophet. He's confronted and rebuked by God. He admits his sin, but later on he's judged because he never repented. Or look at King Saul. Multiple times he tells David, I've done wrong by seeking your life, but then he keeps on doing it. Confession itself is not repentance, but it is a key aspect of repentance. Let us be aware lest we think that repentance is merely confessing sin. It's not all that it is. A second key aspect of true repentance is, number two, emotions. Emotions leading to sorrow. We've got understanding leading to confession and emotions leading to sorrow. If we truly understand our sin for the evil offense that it is against a good and worthy God, then we will be emotionally affected by it. And I'm not talking about a manufactured emotion. I'm talking about a deep-seated and genuine Grief in the heart and a hatred for sin. And to see a great example of this aspect of repentance, let's go back to the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. It's our third anchor passage here. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 to 11. To give you some context for these verses, this is Paul expressing his joy over the repentance of the Corinthian believers. They had engaged in a collective sin against Paul, and they had repented of it. But as Paul celebrates their repentance, he points out, he emphasizes the emotional aspect of it. And notice that as we read 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 to 11. Paul says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Notice how Paul, in these verses, he he contrasts two kinds of sorrow. You have godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Both of these are genuine sorrow, and both may have very real tears. There are some big differences between these two kinds of sorrow. And the first big difference has to do with the main reason for each sorrow. Godly sorrow is God-centered. And it is broken over how terrible a crime sin is against God more than the personal consequences of sin. It sees God as most important. Worldly sorrow, it is chiefly concerned with the self rather than God. Worldly sorrow hates the consequences of sin rather than the sin itself. And it mourns that a particular idol or sin can no longer be safely enjoyed. Oh, I'm sorry I was caught. I'm sorry that I can't do this anymore. Now notice also in the text, another great difference is what these types of repentance, or what these types of sorrow lead to. Godly sorrow, we see, it leads to repentance without regret and to salvation. And this is because a God-centered sorrow will lead one to Christ for forgiveness and help. God-centered sorrow also makes one discontent to remain in a pattern of sin. Rather, you are determined to get that pattern out of your life. God-centered sorrow will not regret giving up sin or even of enduring the necessary consequences of repenting of that sin. Yeah, I know this repentance is going to cost me, but you know what? It's worth it. I don't regret this. And you can see there's also a zeal that comes with a godly sorrow. Look at some of the terms that Paul uses in verse 11. Indignation, fear, Uh, avenging of wrong. 
there's this new hatred for sin, this new desire for God, and a longing to set the situation right for God's sake. Godly sorrow is part of a true turning of heart that wants God above all else. It is a sorrow that becomes connected with a zeal because it wants God. But worldly sorrow, it does not have this zeal. In fact, it's full of regret, not just of the consequences of sin, but even over the repentance itself. Uh, I shouldn't have confessed that sin. I shouldn't have repented of it. It was better then than it was now. The person with worldly sorrow, he continues to choose sin and self over God. So eventually he will return to that sin. He's still serving himself. The heart has not been changed. And thus he inherits the full wages of sin, which we know from Romans 6.23 is what? It's death. It is spiritual death and eternal death. It is forever being separated from the goodness of God, instead suffering in darkness and fire. So, brethren, if we truly understand God's holiness and God's goodness, if we understand what our sin is, then it should cause us to become sorrowful to the point of repentance. That doesn't have to be super obvious outwardly. You don't have to be blubbering. There doesn't have to be a huge amount of tears coming from you. But you should feel grief over your sin. Not merely grief from getting caught, but grief because God is not worthy of that. But this sorrow should then be joined to a happy zeal. This should be true of you, brethren. This sorrow should lead to a happy zeal that seeks God more earnestly. Because there's a mischaracterization of the Christian life. That is, those who are truly mature and holy, they are totally dejected. They just go around walking with a long face, muttering about how sinful they are, and wondering how God could ever endure such a wretched person as that sinner. But that's not where the Bible leads a true believer. Rather, a Christian is one who takes by faith what God promises to sinners, which is what? Welcome, forgiveness, and transformation. Consider, back in Psalm 51, Psalm 51, 17, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God loves the brokenhearted person. He says, come, come. Or James 4, 8 to 10. James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will will exalt you. Not he might exalt you, but he will. The kindness of God is such that he will never refuse the one who is sorrowful to the point of repentance. Rather, like the prodigal's father in Luke 15, God will leap at seeing his child returning to him and will immediately put on the sandals and the rings and the best robe. We do not honor God by wondering if he could show mercy to such a sinner as us. We honor God by taking him at his word that he forgives and transforms sinners. It's amazing, it's wondrous, but it is to be taken by faith. And that reality should fill us with hope and fill us with joy. God, I am so sorry, but I am so thankful that you will forgive me. And take me back to walk anew. So what about you? What about your repentance? Does it have this key aspect where you are moved to godly sorrow that leads to a zeal to return to him and return to righteousness? This must be part of our repentance. If there is no emotional engagement at all, then there is no genuine repentance. The heart still does not understand or accept what sin really is, and therefore it is not moved 
does not move to remain apart from sin. There needs to be a turning in your emotions, even leading to sorrow, if your repentance is true. But let me clarify again, sorrow itself is not all of repentance. There are many people who think they are repenting because they feel sorry, because they cry. But you know what? There are examples in the scriptures of people who are like that, and they did not repent, and they were not saved. Look at Cain. He was given a devastating punishment for his murder, but he didn't return to God. He just complained about how difficult the punishment was. Or look at Judas. He wept. He threw the money back into the temple that he had used, that he had obtained for betraying Christ. But he didn't then go to Christ. He then went to hang himself. Let us beware if we think that mere tears count as repentance before God. They are a key aspect of repentance. Sorrow, godly sorrow is part of true repentance, but it's not all of repentance. There must be a turning in the understanding. There must be a turning in the emotions. But also, thirdly, a third key aspect of true repentance, there needs to be a turning in the will leading to commitment. Number three, will leading to commitment. In repentance, the understanding and emotions must both be engaged to the point that there's actually a change of will. The repentant heart forsakes the old sinful and self-righteous way and embraces the new way of faith and holiness in Christ. Or to say it another way, in true repentance, the heart commits to following Christ no matter the cost. There's a new commitment. A good passage displaying this aspect of repentance is the one that we actually read earlier. Go back to Isaiah 55, and we'll look at verse 7 as our fourth anchor passage. Isaiah 55, 7. Now, in this part of Isaiah, this is another one of the appeals from God to his unfaithful people in Israel, that they would repent, that they would return to him, especially in light of all the promises he's just revealed to them, the prophecies he's revealed to them as to what he will do for them in the future, especially in sending the Messiah. Now look at the, God, look at the way that God specifically invites his people in Isaiah 55, 7, and this applies to us too. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. That is, let him return to Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God here. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you hear how the language of will and commitment are present in this invitation from God? God calls out to the wicked, and he says, forsake your way. Say goodbye to it. God also calls upon the unrighteous to forsake their thoughts. So this must be a thorough inside and out change. You have to give up the sinful acts and the sinful thoughts that are leading to the sinful acts. You commit, in repentance, you commit to give your mind, your mouth, and your entire body over to God. Not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. I'm committing it all to you. And what does God promise the one who actually turns in this way? It doesn't matter how wicked he was. God will have compassion on him. He will abundantly pardon him. Which is an incredible promise. Because God is a holy God. He, as a just God, could never overlook the slightest sin. Every sin must be punished. But he can pardon sinners because of what Christ has done for them. For those who are in Christ, Christ has absorbed and paid all the wrath of God against their sins at the cross. And he has given those sinners instead his perfect righteousness. So those sins were punished, but they weren't punished in us. They were punished in Christ. So then God is able to look at those in Christ and say, I freely pardon you. I abundantly pardon you because Christ has taken your place. His life, death, and resurrection have made you acceptable to me. This is the good news of the gospel. 
But because of this, that's why God commands sinners, come repent. Choose to follow a new way, my way, not your old way. Give up your sin. And God says, come to me for life and pardon. And this is just like what Jesus says. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, that you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Wow, what an invitation. Or Luke 9, 23. Jesus also says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. And that's the method of execution here. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Salvation and repentance are the end of you and your own way. If you want the life of God, then you must repent, which means to turn from your sin and yourself and return to God and Christ. You must commit to following His way, no matter the obstacles, the persecutions, or the difficulties. And if you do this, you will find the full pardon and eternal life of God. Now, putting these things together, Without a change of will and a sincere commitment, a real turning to follow Christ no matter what, there's no true repentance. You can confess, you can be emotionally affected and have sorrow, but if you have not committed to actually turning, that's false repentance. It's incomplete, and whatever you think you're accomplishing, it will not last. But on the flip side... An attempted change of will without changes, without turning also in the understanding and the emotions, it is also a repentance doomed to fail. Willing yourself to change without understanding truly why you should and without any true zeal to accomplish that change, that's just fleshly self-reform, which is what the people of the world do and attempt to do. Self-generated change is only temporary or it only changes one sin for another. That is, okay, I'm giving up drunkenness, but now I've become a workaholic. Or, okay, I'm giving up the indulgence of pornography, but now I'm a self-righteous Pharisee. For true repentance of the inner man It needs to be a turning of the entire self. Thoughts, emotions, and will. These, compelled by the truth of God and empowered by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, they must genuinely, you must genuinely give up self and sin to take Christ and His holy way. Your understanding must confess sin and see the way God sees it. Your Emotions must grieve over sin and long for God instead. And your will must forsake sinful sinful thoughts and actions and commit to Christ. And again, these truths apply both to salvation and sanctification. This is how you come to Christ in the beginning but it's also how you proceed in following after Christ. This is what we should be doing in our relationships when there needs to be repentance. And there needs to be a change in each one of these parts of the inner man. Or else that repentance is not true or going to last. Now there's one more key aspect of true repentance that needs to be mentioned. Technically this is not part of repentance because it's Repentance is in the inner man, but it always accompanies repentance. So it's worth mentioning. That is, number four, behavior leading to fruit. Behavior leading to fruit. All true repentance will result in actual and persevering change in behavior. A 
The change in the inner man will result in a change of the outer man. If we believe that we have repented with our whole self, but then find that we are committing the same sins just the same way we used to, then the sobering truth from the Scripture is we have not repented at all. All true heart repentance bears fruit, bears righteous fruit in one's words and actions. For our last anchor passage to illustrate this, please turn to Luke. Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Luke 3, verses 7 to 9. This is the preaching of John the Baptist. He's preaching on repentance and forgiveness. And many people are going out to him to listen and to be baptized, but... In the section we're going to read, John is noticing, he's just noticed that there are some people who are coming to him who are coming to him falsely. There are some Pharisees, there are some other Jews who, they want to go through the motions of repentance, but they aren't actually repenting. So listen to what John the Baptist says to them in Luke 3, verses 7 and 9. We'll start in the middle of verse 7. He says to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore... Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These words in this passage from John the Baptist, they're very sobering because John is plainly teaching the crowds whatever they say or think about repentance, if it doesn't result in good fruit, in a new righteous behavior, in conformity with God's word, then it's false repentance that still leaves one under the judgment of God. And notice the urgency with which John urges the crowds to test the genuineness of their repentance. In verse 9, he says, The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. And what does that mean? Well, if you're laying the axe head at the roots, it's, you're just finishing your aiming. You're getting ready for that first chop, and all you have to do is wind up and then start destroying the tree. John the Baptist is saying, Judgment is ready. And it could fall on any time, fall at any time on those who have not truly repented and are therefore not showing any fruit of repentance. This is not something to wait around about. This is something to make sure you have right with God right now. And remember that the ones he's speaking to are not obviously godless ones. These are not the atheists of Israel. These are not the profligates of Israel just looking at John the Baptist and laughing. These are the best, the the most moral in Israel. They've come all the way out to the wilderness to be baptized. I mean, they're, they're like the super holy ones. In a modern analogy, they would be professing church going Christians. And yet, listen to what John says to this crowd. Beware that you are not deceiving yourselves into thinking that you have repented and are safe with Christ when you are not. Look at your life. Look at the way you're living. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Unless we think John is just a little harsh, you know, John the Baptist guy, he's fire and brimstone. Uh, can't take his preaching. Well, guess what? Jesus says the same thing. Matthew seven twenty one to 23, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I will tell them I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Don't tell me I'm your Lord when you don't live that way. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians five nineteen to 24. The deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh totally contradicts the fruit of the Spirit. Which one are you displaying? Brothers and sisters, 
If you really have repented, you should be seeing the fruit of it in your life. You should be displaying the fruit of it. You should have new, changed, righteous behavior. You cannot continue in your old evil habits. You cannot say, well, it's just the way that I am. True repentance leads to a changed life. A real internal change leads to a real external change. And let us have none of the, yes, I keep on sinning in the same way, but I repent after every time. Friends, that's not repentance. That's just a pause. That's like a bank robber, bank robber repenting between his different robberies. That's not a repentance that we could trust in. If a robber, if a thief is truly repentant, then not only must his habit of stealing come to an end, but he is also to put on righteousness. He is to pay back with interest what he has taken. He is to work an honest job, and he is to give to others rather than to take. That's real fruit. So brothers and sisters, where are you in your repentance with God? Have you truly repented? Have you come to Christ in a fundamental way that says, wow, I really do need your mercy? My understanding, my emotions, my will are changed that I know I cannot continue my old way anymore. I need you. I need your salvation and I need your help. Save me, Lord Christ. Cover me with your with your wings. And now, enable me to walk new with you. Have you come to Christ in that way fundamentally? And then, are you doing that as you still encounter sin habits trying to implant themselves in your life? Oh Lord, I I didn't realize I'm slipping back into this sin. I keep going back to it. God, I have to turn away from this. Has your understanding, your emotions, your will been engaged in that way to the point that you're actually seeing fruit, that you are changing? God, thank you. I'm not the way that I used to be. I'm not perfect yet. I won't be. But I can become more like Christ. Is that what's happening in your life? God has the right to question our repentance if we proclaim it without fruit. And so do others around us. You go to your spouse or you go to your family members, your friends, you say, you know, I'm really sorry, you know, I sinned this way and you know it was wrong and I'm really sorry about it. Will you please forgive me? I'm committing to change. If the person says back to you, but isn't that what you said last time? And the time before? And the time before that? Give me some evidence that your heart really is different. I want to forgive you. But is your repentance real? We'll be helped in the bearing fruit aspect of repentance if we take the time to think specifically about what changes we can make in our lives to conform with what God has called us to do. And these can be quite practical. It it could be a young student saying, Mom and Dad, I know I haven't been very responsible when it comes to my schoolwork. So to show that I'm serious about being a holy student before Christ, I'm not going to play video games until my homework is done each day. I'm not requiring that of you. I'm just giving an example. Think through specifically, if I really am repenting in this area, what changes can I make? Or if you're struggling with anger and retaliation towards a family member, Maybe you might pray, God, I'm going to memorize and meditate on Romans 14, 12 to 21. This is a passage that's all about overcoming evil with good and not retaliating. Lord God, I want these things to be in my mind all the time so for the next time I face that situation, I'm ready. I have your truth close at hand so I can fight back against temptation. That's a practical change you can make as part of your repentance. You need to think through those things. Now, You'll probably attempt different things. You'll make certain changes and you find out that it wasn't enough or they were imperfect or you need to make more. But you know what? That's okay. 
That's what the Christian life is. That's the progression in sanctification. We're becoming more and more like Christ, never arriving at perfection, but walking more and more in joyful fellowship with him and in holiness. That's what we want. And if you're a Christian, that means you have the Holy Spirit, so you can do this. You can do this. You must do this. And you will. And borrowing some language there from Pastor John MacArthur. I think it's very helpful. You can, you must, you will if you really know Christ. What is unacceptable is a lack of change and a lack of effort to change. If your heart is not in your repentance, well, of course, you'll never bear lasting fruit. But if your heart is truly turned to God, then you should be willing to do whatever it takes to gain Christ and to put off sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, don't forget the things we've just been learning in Ecclesiastes. This is not something that you're just supposed to do by yourself. You need to take advantage of the means of grace that God has given you. What does that mean? I'm talking about things like reading the Word of God, hearing the Word preached, praying, enjoying the Lord's table, and fellowshipping with one another. That discipleship, that ministry to one another that's supposed to be taking place between believers in the church. You need this. We need this. We need to be spurring on one another in our repentance and in our sanctification. You say, oh, I keep struggling with this sin. I keep struggling. I keep struggling. Have you actually reached out for anyone to help you? No, no, I'll overcome. I'll overcome. Well, why haven't you done that yet? Don't you see that God gave you the church so that you can have victory? You're not supposed to go alone. Life is better together. So don't fail to take advantage of these means of grace. It's actually how you progress in your sanctification. That's part of your repentance. Being willing, being committed to do whatever it takes means you take advantage of the means of grace. It's that important. Your understanding needs to be changed in that way. If I'm not going to walk in sin, I do need to be in the Scriptures. For any of this to begin, you, of course, have to come to Christ. You have to have come to Christ in a fundamental way. So you need to examine where your heart is. This is a good time to do so. This is the changing of the years. Like I said last week, it's a good time to reflect on how you're living before God and others. So where are you? Where's your heart? Have you ever repented before Christ? Truly repented? And now is that repentance working itself out in a continual lifestyle? A full repentance of the inner man. Understanding, emotions, will. That leads to tangible fruits of righteousness in the outer man. That other people can, say, can see and say, wow, you really have repented. Praise the Lord. It may be, brothers and sisters, that at the start of 2021, the first thing that we need to repent of is our old repenting. But by the grace of God, you and I can do this. We can walk with Christ in holiness and therefore know the blessing of his fellowship. Remember that God does not hold any sinner, any repentant sinner at arm's length. Jesus says that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance, who think they need no repentance. So now's the time. There's like a banquet promised for you with God when you truly repent. So do it. Now's the time. Embrace the Lord's invitation. Come and repent. This is a great time to do it, right at the beginning of the year. And then bear fruit. Show the Lord. Show others and show yourself I really am different. The Lord has done a work in me, so I'm going to walk new with him. And let's enjoy the banquet of God's kindness, forgiveness, and grace as we repent at the beginning of this year. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this word. Lord, I know it is a word that may be wounding to some who are here today. Well, I know what the proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, and 
deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Lord, you wound us for our good. You show us our sin and our need to repent so that we may obtain something better, which is you. Lord, for those who need to repent, I pray that they would today, even now, this moment, that their hearts would be changed in a full way. And Lord, if there, if there needs to be repentance in relationships, I pray that that also would take place in a true way with lasting fruit. God, we cannot do this on our own, so we ask for your grace and power to do it, which you say you will provide. For those that, are, that know you. Lord, be merciful. And we trust that you are merciful, so we come to you in repentance. Forgive us our sins, but thank you for your forgiveness and the new life we have in Christ. Help us to walk worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.